Acts is a book filled with the names of people just like we are. And we're looking at some of those names in a series from the book of Acts we've called God's Actors from Acts. We have looked at Peter and Stephen. Today we take one that's not quite as familiar perhaps as others, but powerful, powerful man with a great lesson for all of us. His name is Barnabas. And we call this message the goodness of Barnabas. I asked Pastor Knight to have us read the second time, verse number 24, which is really the heart of this whole message. This would be a marvelous epitaph on a tombstone, for he was a good man. That wouldn't be bad right there. But it goes on to say, full of the Holy Ghost and of faith. Now that's something to strive for. That's something to shoot for. If you want some ambition, there's a wonderful ambition. Now let us take for a moment a look at some of the other passages in Acts where Barnabas is mentioned, remembering the words of one ancient sage. One example is worth a thousand arguments. We can get a lot of answers by looking at this man Barnabas. The first time you meet him in Acts is chapter 4. In chapter 4, verses 36 and 37, you will meet this fellow whose name was changed. And we will later on talk about why his name was changed. Verse 36, Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. That's the first mention of his name, Barnabas, who was Joseph. They changed his name. The second is in the ninth chapter of the book of Acts, when the newly converted Saul of Tarsus comes down to Jerusalem from the north. But the disciples were afraid of him. And this is where Barnabas comes into the picture once again. Verse 26, And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he declared to them how he had seen the Lord on the road and that he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. The encouragement of Barnabas brought about an open door for this new convert, Saul of Tarsus. Paul went in and out among them at Jerusalem because of the influence of this good man, Barnabas. Then the third time is the time we've just read from in our scripture reading from chapter 11. The entire section would be from 19 through verse 26. A fierce outbreak of persecution hit the church after the martyrdom of Stephen. Stephen was the first martyr, but afterward much martyrdom came to those early believers. As a result of the martyrdom, they scattered. 
They went east, west, north, and south to various points on the globe. Many of the Greeks in Antioch believed and turned to the Lord because of the coming into their coasts of these believers from Jerusalem, these Jews. The Gentiles were opening up to the gospel of Jesus Christ. When this happened, the people in Jerusalem sent Barnabas down to Antioch. They knew that th these new converts would need instruction. So they knew there was no one better than Barnabas to go. Verse 24 says that a large number was added to the Lord. A, a big church was developing in the city of Antioch. Now this man Barnabas saw the need of strengthening these believers, so he took a little side road. He went to Tarsus where Saul lived. And he got Saul and took him with him down to Antioch, and the outcome is in this simple line. And in Antioch, the disciples were, for the first time, called Christians. It was so remarkable and so widespread that this name was given them as a tag, and it has stuck to this very day. They called them Christians, which means Christ's ones, followers of Jesus Christ. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Now, that's background for you. Now, let's take a look at point one. We will, we will look at Christian goodness for a minute, and then we will analyze the various aspects or characteristics of this man Barnabas. Now, the world says so often, if you want to live a dull life, be good. Now, you've heard that in some form or another. Maybe it would come out like this. If you want to live a good life, keep the Ten Commandments, but it will be dull. You won't have any fun. There will be no excitement in it. Now, I don't know where that concept got birthed, but I will tell you it's not true. It is believed by many that holiness is a dull affair, that the people of God are dreary, and that for life and color you must look elsewhere. Somehow they've gotten the idea that everybody that comes to church wears black. Now, some do. <laughs> but that's just the thing with me. I've told the staff, wear dark clothes on Sunday morning, you can kind of liven it up on Sunday night if you want, and even then they go to extremes sometimes. I don't even know where they find some of those coats, let alone wear them. But be that as it may, uh, we just like to feel a little conservative on Sunday morning up here. But that doesn't mean we're dull. Don't mistake that for dullness. Please, I have some red in my tie. And inside of me, I'm just bubbling with enthusiasm and joy and excitement this morning. Life is far from dull to me. But somewhere out there, the world got that idea. They see the clerics going around in black clothes and collars turned around. And uh, it was a sad thing when the Episcopalian priest on his motorcycle had an accident and he was doing real good till the medic straightened his neck out. Then he, he just lost it right on the spot. So there's danger sometimes in those collars being backward. That was dumb, but who cares? 
I want to destroy that image. That's what I'd like to get rid of. Romans 3.12 says that there is none that doeth good, no, not one. That's true. The Bible says all have sinned in the same chapter, come short of the glory of God. And then the world joins in and says, see, the Bible says there's none good, no, not one. All are a bunch of hypocrites who claim to be good. But Paul is indicating something else in this chapter. He's talking about the whole world. It's not a description of the man of God. It's not a description of Barnabas. It's not a description of me. It's a description of the world in its lost condition. Paul is showing how the whole world is under the condemnation of sin. All have sinned and come short. There's none that doeth good, no, not one. And when you look out on the world, surely that's the impression you get. But Barnabas was good. In the midst of those statements, you find this person, Barnabas. Now, let me be quick to say that no one is naturally good. Barnabas was not naturally good. He had allowed Jesus Christ to come into his life with pardon and righteousness. His was a Christian goodness. No one is born good. If you think so, just hold a baby for a while. You will find they have a mind of their own. They do all kinds of things you wish they wouldn't do when you're holding them. The older you get, sometimes the harder it is to handle all that. That's why God gives us children when we're young, grandchildren when we're older, when we can send them home. God is very wise. Put that together wonderfully. But we're not born good. None of us are. But the story of Barnabas is one of grace. It's one where into the human nature came the divine righteousness of Christ. Theologically, that word righteousness sounds a little fearful. But it's a simple word. It means right living. Righteousness means out of us flows the rightness of Jesus Christ. We open the door of our heart. Jesus comes in and out of us. He lives his life. That's why Paul said, the life that I live is the life that Christ lives within me. So it's not impossible, nor is it difficult. Righteousness is a wonderful, simplistic word. It simply means that into our unholy nature comes the holiness of Jesus Christ, and we become good because he is good. He helps us to do what's right in a world that goes wrong many times. Now open your Bible to the 12th chapter of Luke. Luke, the 12th chapter, Jesus is talking in this passage telling a story, parables he's speaking, probably a story that came out of actual life, but it says in the passage here in Luke chapter 16 that it's a parable. He speaks to them in parables. So did I say 16? 12, I mean. 12, verse 16. Now we got it. Verse 16, chapter 12. He spoke a parable to them, saying, The ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully. And he thought within himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no room to store my crops? So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns, build greater, and there I will store all my crops and my goods. And I will say to my soul, 
Saul, you have many goods laid up for many years. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be which you have provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Then as you read on, which I'm not going to take the time to do, you will find the familiar allegory of Jesus with birds of the air and lilies of the field and talking to us from those examples about how God cares for them. How much more will he care for us? He will clothe us. He will feed us. He will take care of us. So here we have in this 12th chapter of the Gospel of St. Luke a very interesting contrast, something that we need to understand. The birds have no barns, but they have God. The farmer had barns, but he had not God. That's what Jesus is trying to get us, get us to see. Here are these birds, got all they need. Not a worry in the world. They have food, they have shelter, they're cared for by God. Here's this rich man. He's worried, he's frustrated. He's fuming, he's not good. He's trying to build bigger barns and greater storehouses. And God comes along to him and says to him, friend, why don't you wake up? Why don't you wise up? You could have all the world, but if you don't have me, you're a fool. What will these things be if today your life would be required of you? And I ask you that same question, friends. If this day your life would be required of you, whose would these things be? I don't want them to go to her. I don't want them to go to him. I don't want that person to get it. I don't want the government. Well, then you better think about that. Who's going to get it? You'd better write your will to the church. Let the church use it if you have trouble with people that are around you. I'm serious. That's a wonderful thing to do. In every will, the church ought to be included because God gave you whatever you have in the estate. And some of it ought to go to build the kingdom and to bring others into the faith. So God is saying, hey, man, wake up. Don't live your life so selfishly. You have to give. You have to reach out. You have to be a good person. Christian goodness is a powerful thing. When we make ourselves available to Christ, how marvelously he moves upon us to make us attractive. You see, I read this story of this rich fool, and I think, man, he was all alone, no friends, isolated. All he had was barns and crops. What a bummer that would be. Pretty hard to wrap your arms around a bag of grain and say, I love you, I love you. I think you're wonderful. But that's all he had. And he thought he really had it made. And God says, why don't you take a look at the birds? They're flying around, and they know that they're going to be cared for. But you, not you, you've been so wrapped up in yourself you have no room for Christian goodness. Something to think about, isn't it? That's the case that comes to us from the life of Barnabas. Maybe it could be illustrated in the story of Joe who drives one of these um, emergency vehicles. They have the light on the top and they're painted colorfully 
and we are to move over to the right when they come behind us with their sirens screeching and their lights flashing. Joe was a driver of one of these. One morning at 6 o'clock, he got a call to come to a home. He didn't want to go. It was too early. But he said, I'll do it because a woman needed to get her son to the hospital 50 miles away. It was a 50-mile journey. And he, he said, I, I'd better go. Who else would do it? So he went reluctantly, and he carried little, this little boy into the vehicle and sat him with his mother up front, not putting him in the back because the mother feel more comfortable with someone there. And as they started down the highway 50 miles to go, this little fellow looked over to Joe driving this emergency vehicle and said in his little impish way, you're God, aren't you? And Joe said, I'm afraid not, little fellow. Well, he said, I thought you must be God. I heard mother praying next to my bed asking God to help me get to the hospital so I could get well and play with the other boys. I just thought you must be God. Do you work for God? And Joe by this time was in pieces. He said, well, sometimes I do, but not regularly. But I tell you what, I'm going to do it a lot more from now on. You see how it works? That's the essence of Barnabas. Barnabas wasn't wrapped up in Barnabas. Barnabas was an instrument of Jesus Christ, a man of the pew, just like Stephen, who offered himself to God. And God began to use him, so much so that when they were thinking of somebody to go to Antioch to establish the church there, the believers there, they said, let's send Barnabas. He's a good man. He's full of the Holy Spirit, and he's full of faith. God, give us more of them. Now, let's look at the goodness of Barnabas. It manifested itself in several ways. One was through a generous spirit. If you go back to chapter 4, verses 36 and 37, you read, He sold a field which belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the disciples' feet. Nobody is really good in the Christian sense who is mean and miserly and grasping, who is ungenerous with Christ and his church. Mark it down. If you're stingy and you're not generous with the Lord and the Lord's work, you're not a Barnabas, but you can be. He had a field. It was his, but he sold it and brought the money and laid it at the disciples' feet. He was a generous spirit. After all, we're only a trustee, are we not? We are an employer, in a sense, in charge of what God gives us. And sometimes, as an employer of that, we have to have employees to manage it. But it is to be in generosity. It is to be with a just, honest spirit, a steward is careful how he spends his money, how he works for his employer. It is required in stewards, 1 Corinthians 4, 2 says, that a man be found faithful. That was Barnabas. Generous, loving. When friends were heaping praise on Fritz Kreisler, the Austrian-American violinist, he waved aside the lavish remarks, declaring he wanted no credit because he was deserving of none. 
Fritz Kreisler put it this way, I was born with music in my soul. It was the gift of providence. Therefore, I do not even look on the money I earn as something of my own. It is entrusted to me for proper disbursement. I don't know if Fritz Kreisler was a Christian or not, but he surely had the Christian spirit in that regard. He recognized what all of us need to recognize, that whatever God gives us, we are trustees of it, and we are to be generous with it and bless people with it. The one-talent man will not be expected to turn it into a ten-talent Chrysler performance, but the ten-talent man will be expected to make a ten-talent performance. Whatever number the talents we have, one or ten, or any amount in between, we are expected by God to use those with a generous spirit and bestow whatever gifts we have upon people because a lavish God has bestowed them upon us. That's part of goodness. Barnabas had a Christ-induced goodness, and he gave. He gave. That's the only way I have discovered we're really happy is when we're giving. Christmas every day of the year with the believer who is anxious to give, not just to receive, but to give, to make his life a channel through which God, the Holy Spirit, can work. Secondly, Barnabas was a magnanimous spirit. Chapter 9, verses 26 and 27. Saul of Tarsus is converted. The Christians are afraid of him. He had brought many to their death. When Saul, after conversion, attempts to join the disciples, they are suspicious of him. They hold him at arm's length. Now, folk, I do not find in the gifts, whether they be the gifts of 1 Corinthians 12 or Romans 12 or Ephesians 4, I have yet to find the gift of suspicion. But do you know the church is laden with people with the gift of suspicion? Well, let's wait six months and really see if he's been converted. Let's wait for a year to see if they're worthy to do thus or so. There are certain parts of the world, certain denominations who require people to wait so many days or months before they can be baptized in water to prove that they really came to Christ. Now, you show me where that is in the New Testament. Jesus takes us at face value. I'm so glad for that. Jesus Christ does not ask us to go from here to somewhere out here before he bestows grace and help in our life. He says, if you open the door of your heart, I will come in, and that's good enough for me. Now, I'm going to pray a prayer. Lord, save us all from the gift of suspicion. Amen. Let's take one another as we are. Not that we're perfect, not that we can't improve, but after all, let us recognize that the grace of God has appeared to all men, and if God's grace reaches any of us, let us embrace one another and say, praise God with the same spirit that Barnabas embraced Saul of Tarsus. That's a magnanimous right spirit. We need it in the church today. We sometimes look for people who dress just like we do. 
for people who drive the certain kind of an automobile before we want to get close. Let's get rid of that. Let's allow the devil to get out of us in that regard, shall we? Because that's his work. He likes to build walls and classifications, but that's not the work of the Holy Spirit. With him there is no male nor female. We are all one in Jesus Christ, and that was the spirit of Barnabas, and that's what made him a good man. He went to Saul and he said, Saul, I believe Jesus Christ has come into your life. I want you to come with me. I'm going to introduce you to the disciples. That's exactly what Acts 9 says. They did not believe he was a disciple, but Barnabas said he's a disciple. The Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus. This shows us another part of the church. Let's just kind of make fun of ourselves, huh? Sometimes that's good. They had been praying for the conversion of a man by the name of Saul of Tarsus. Now he gets saved and they won't accept him. Hello. Aren't we somewhat like that? Oh, great faith. God save him. I know you're going to save him. The Lord saves him. Well, who do you think you are anyway? You think you're a Christian like me or something? Isn't that incredible how we get? We don't let God's grace just absolutely manifest itself. But verse 27 says Barnabas took him. Oh, thank God. I love that. Barnabas took him. You want to be like Barnabas? He was a magnanimous soul. He wasn't going to hold a new convert at arm's length. Evangelical Christians sometimes are so hard and unforgiving toward people who have sinned. Not Barnabas. He was a good man. And he took Saul under his arm. I wonder what would have happened if Barnabas hadn't done that. I wonder if there would have been a Paul, the great apostle, if Barnabas hadn't been around to take him under his wing. Then when you come to chapter 11, where we've read today, there was tension building between the Jew and the Gentile believers in Antioch, so they sent Barnabas from Jerusalem to ease the tensions and a problem that was there. But he wasn't an apostle. How could he go? He wasn't an apostle. He wasn't an ordained minister. Didn't matter. They knew he had the right spirit. That's what counted with them. They wanted a man with the right spirit there. And would you believe he takes a shortcut on the way to Antioch through Tarsus? Ah, why? Because he wanted to take a fellow with him, a fellow he believed in, a fellow who had gifts. And so he takes Saul of Tarsus, and he says, in essence, I'm not going to be a big duck in this big pond. I'm going to take somebody along with me to share the joy and the blessing of training these Gentiles in the ways of God. Paul will be able to cope with the difficulties and with some of the impossible situations there. I'll have him hold up my hands and I'll hold up his hands and we'll work together in Antioch to solve this problem. Out of the, in, in, out of the incredible spirit of this man comes this line. They called them Christians first in Antioch. Have you ever read the book The Second Fiddle by Uncle Henry of PTL? How many of you have ever seen Uncle Henry on PTL? Big old Uncle Henry. Uncle Henry's the second fiddle. You know it takes the grace of God to play second fiddle, not sit in the front row seat, but in the second row. 
And when the concert is over, the concertmaster has the first chair violinist stand, take the bow, everybody claps, second fiddle sitting there. Praise God. He deserves it. He's good. He's good. He's good. I'm glad. That's the way Barnabas was. He was able to play second fiddle with a good spirit. It's tragic when people get nominated for deacon positions and they don't get elected and they leave the church. Oh, it would never happen here, but I mean other places. People have a hard time playing second fiddle. The Sunday school superintendent says you'd do better over here than you would here and get miffed and leave. That's not Barnabas. He'd clean closets out. Whatever, if it was what was needed. Magnanimous, second fiddle kind of a guy. Uncle Henry's that way. Anytime I've been down to PTL, whenever Uncle Henry walks in, the whole place kind of lights up. Just things just sort of, hey, 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 there's old Henry. And when you've been hugged by Henry, you know you've been hugged. It's just sort of all over you. And he wrote that book, uh, Second Fiddle, because Jim's the first fiddle, fiddles around a lot. And Uncle Henry kind of keeps Tammy in line, you know. Once in a while, behind the scenes, you'll see him straightening things out. You never see it on camera, but you see it over here. Uncle Henry's down here just working things out, making things go right. Once in a while, he'll say something funny just to kind of get the pressure off. Maybe things are getting a little tense, and he'll throw in a little one-liner. He's terrific at that. Oh, God, give us people who know how to play second fiddle. What a tragedy it would be if there was only one fiddle in the orchestra. Amen? Magnanimous spirit, how's yours today? Well, it was good that somebody took my parking place. <laughs> oh, it was good till I walked in. Somebody was sitting where I usually sit, and I had to move way over to another spot. Amen, oh, amen. Magnanimous spirit, you just move with the flow because Jesus Christ is working his will through your life. Thirdly, he had an infectious spirit, chapter 4, verse 36. Joseph was named Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Now, the people around this man got to saying, hey, Joseph, that name, that doesn't fit him. Let's name him Barnabas, son of encouragement. So they changed his name because of his personality, his Christianity. Let's call him Barnabas, son of encouragement. Seems that everywhere he went, he had a genius for lifting the spirit and the mood of the people. Have you ever met somebody like that? The right mood, the right handshake, the right word, and then you've met other folk. Oh, my goodness. You walk into the room, and there they are. You know their favorite line? What can you expect from any day that begins by getting up in the morning? <laughs> That's their favorite line. They really inspire you. They're just... And then when they open their mouth, you know, oh boy, what an edifying experience. 
Well, thank God for people like Barnabas. When he walked into a room, everything lit up. It was like Christmas. And they said, we've got to give him a different name. He's a different guy. He's an encourager. Let's call him Barnabas. Now, this other fellow, when he goes, you say, thank God, that's over with. And you sort of avoid that person. Well, it's a wonderful thing to let the radiant beauty of Jesus Christ express itself through you. Now, the thing that I've got to do somehow today is to convince you that you can be like Barnabas. And you don't have to be like that. That's what this passage of Scripture is all about. You can be like Barnabas. That's why this whole thing is in here. So we could pattern ourselves after him. A kind of goodness that's not repulsive, attractive, an infectious spirit kind of a person. A little girl prayed at family devotions, Lord, make the bad people good, and Lord, please, make the good people nice. That sort of says it, doesn't it? Make the good people nice. Somebody who knows how to send over a meal when a family's hungry. Someone who knows how to write a letter that reaches a discouraged heart. Someone who knows how to pick up a telephone and call somebody and say, I just, you know, I felt impressed to do that this morning. I was just about to come back to the waiting room for first service when something said, call up. Dr. Nelson at Fair Oaks Prez. I got the phone book, got the number, phoned, and lo and behold, he was in the office. The lady said, just a minute. I said, Dr. Nelson, I was so impressed and blessed by the article in the paper about you yesterday. 32 years in one church, in one community is a fabulous testimony. And we're proud of you today. And I know you have a hundred emotions going through your spirit this morning as you face your last day in your pulpit. But I want you to know we're going to be praying for you at Capital Christian. And we love you and thank God for your witness in this community for 32 years. And you know, he could hardly talk back. He started to cry. He started to weep into the telephone. And he said, thank you, brother. And I said, I'll talk to you later. I had to run. I just believe Dr. Nelson needed that, and the Holy Spirit said, call him up. I can just imagine what it would be like if I'd spent 32 years in this pulpit and this was my last morning, what I'd feel like. I could hardly bear to think of that. You, know, you understand what I'm saying? Just to be an encourager, to be alert to those little promptings of the Holy Spirit that says, somebody needs you right now. Write a letter, call, do something, take a pie over there, do something that will tell them you care, you love them, you're thinking about them. That was Barnabas. That, that was the way his whole life was. Infectious. And then, fourth, he had a soul-winning spirit. Chapter 11, verse 24, a large company was added to the Lord. He found a goodly number of believers when he went to Antioch, but when he left, there was a massive number. How many are you bringing in? How many are you causing to come to Christ? Have you gone to your boss lately and said, hey, boss, are you ready to meet Jesus? What if you die today? Have you done that lately? Marvelous experience. 
I dare you. <laughs> I just dare you. Everybody in one week all over this town. Hey, boss, what if you die today? What, what do you do if you go to be with Jesus? Would you meet him? Uh, I talked a few weeks ago about these empty seats. You know, we want to fill them up in both services. And after that service, whenever that was, somebody came to me and said, wouldn't it be wonderful if every family was assigned one of those empty seats? Well, friend, there they are. Go put your name on it. Put your stake right there. A family filling up an empty pew, bringing people to Christ. That's wonder. That's the idea. Oh, God bless you. That's it. He was a soul winner, this man Barnabas. When he left Antioch, there was a massive amount of people who loved Jesus Christ. When we check out, will there be anybody who found the Lord because we were there if we're like Barnabas, there will be. Now, he infected Paul because in Romans 10, it says that Paul's prayer and heart's desire for Israel was that they would be saved. So here's Paul years later with the same spirit of Barnabas. My prayer, my heart's desire is that Israel will be saved. My heart's prayer desire for Sacramento, that they might be saved. All these seats full. Twice on Sunday morning, then we can go to a third service. Then we can fill it up Sunday night, pack it out. Wednesday night, fill it up. Have two services Sunday night. Oh, glory to God, because we're Barnabas, is living our life and bringing others under his influence. Does that sound foolish? Sounds so sensible to me. The impact this body could have, we had the Barnabas spirit. And there's one more. I'll quit. Put the caboose on. How was this all to happen? How could Barnabas become a soul winner, infectious and all these things? There's one line that gives us the clue. He was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. You just don't learn it in books. I want you to go to the classes we have. I want you to get involved in discipleship dynamics and all that. But listen, there's one thing above and beyond all that you've got to have. Be full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. That's how it works. Are you full of the Holy Spirit? Hebrews 13, 5 says, examine yourself. See if you be in the faith. Have you done that lately? Are you really walking with the Lord? Is Jesus Christ filling your life? Is he so important to you that you don't think you could ever get along without him? full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith? Do you spend time on your knees? Are you in the prayer room? In the New Testament alone, the Spirit is referred to nearly 300 times, and the one word constantly related to the word Holy Spirit is the word power. If you want power, you must have the Holy Spirit. If you want to be like Barnabas, you must have the Holy Spirit. And I'm seeing it to a degree. Laymen, I'm rubbing shoulders with who are filling up they're getting their tanks full. The power is increasing. They're beginning to reach out and touch their world. But, oh, God, let it be with all of us in this exciting hour of opportunity. The Barnabas fraternity is in need of enlargement. It really is. Now, in the 1600s, during the reign of Oliver Cromwell, the government ran out of silver coins Cromwell sent his men to a cathedral to see if they could locate any silver in the cathedral so they could put it into coins. They came back and reported to Cromwell that the only silver they could find was in the statues of the saints standing in the corners. 
And Cromwell said, good, good, we'll melt down the saints and put them into circulation. End of sermon. That's what the Holy Spirit wants to do, melt down the saints, put them into circulation. And in the midst of Acts, there was a man by the name of Barnabas who said, I'll be a candidate. I'll let God touch me like that. And he went out, and I mean, he made a path through which the Holy Spirit could move. And many came to know Christ. Many were lifted and edified in the faith. There is not on the record a negative word about Brother Barnabas. I want to be like that myself. That's my prayer for Glen Cole. Oh, God in heaven, make me good like Barnabas. Let's pray. No one leaving, please just stay steady for just a few more moments. As we now come to that very urgent and most important point in our service when we act on what we hear. Jesus, thank you for ready ears to hear your word today, people who are responding in their hearts. Thank you, Lord, that you brought people into our company today who do not know you, but now they want to know you. They feel something stirring inside that says, become a Christian, be a follower of Jesus Christ. Bring them all the way through the door. People are saying, I want to be like Barnabas. I haven't been as loving. I've really been thinking about myself so much, and I haven't been thinking about others. I want to be good like Barnabas. I want to have all of his qualities. God, touch us in that way. While our heads are bowed and we're, we're really praying over the message, how many of you would today say, I need Christ, Pastor Cole, and boy, there's something within me that says this is my day. This is my day. I want to come to Jesus, and I'm opening my heart to him right now. And I'd like you to pray with me. Would you raise your hand as an indication that that's what the Spirit of God is doing in your life? And let me pray with you. Just raise your hand up wherever you sit right now. Hold it up real high. Thank you back here. Yes, toward the back. Raise it up, and then you may put it down once I've seen it. Yes, over to my right, way over in the corner, two hands. God bless you there. Raise it up, down again after I see it. I want Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, ma'am. God bless you. God bless you good. I want Jesus. I need to be saved. I need to know that I am ready to meet God, that I would go to heaven if I should die today. Yes, another over to my right. Thank you. God bless you over there. Thank you so much. Thank you, Lord. Another right here in this section, two in this section, three in this section in front of me. God bless you. Over here, another. God bless you, young lady. Thank God for you. Praise the Lord for this opportunity. Coming to Jesus is the greatest thing you could ever do. Anyone else like to raise their hand? Just lift it up right now. God bless you, buddy. God bless you. It's a good choice. And God loves you so much. Praise the Lord. How many of you would like to raise a hand and say, I'd like to be like Barnabas. I haven't been doing too good of a job at it, but I'm a candidate. I'm a candidate, Pastor, just like you are. Here's my hand. I want to be like Barnabas, a good man, full of goodness. Oh, God bless you. Lord, 
Thank you for the joy of coming back from camp meeting to preach to my flock today. What a delight to be together. Oh God, you're adding to the flock. So many raised their hands. May they feel your love and may they feel my love and the love of this congregation. And may they just walk right into the presence of God now. Save them. Forgive them of all their sins. And Lord, for the people who raised their hands saying, I want to be good like Barnabas, I really want...